Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. But we're very happy to um, have Mona Simpson here. Uh, Mona Simpson is the author of Anywhere But Here, Lost Father, A Regular Guy in Off Keck Road, which was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award and won the Heartland Prize of the, uh, from the Chicago Tribune. Uh, just um, on a personal note, it was wonderful. Uh, I was actually a former student of hers, so to have her come here and introduce her really is, is really exciting for me. So um, She'll be joined with uh, Lawrence Wilson from the Pastina Star News, and we'll have a discussion first. And then uh, Mona will read a little bit, so it should be a, a really, you know, really provocative evening. Evening. Please welcome uh, Mona Simpson and uh, Lawrence Wilson. I know you all think you're getting a twofer here, but um, but Mona and I did this uh, shtick at um, at Sandra Singlow's um, house the other night, and um, it went so well we thought we'd do it again. Um, Mona and I went to college together at um, at Berkeley. Um, yay! <laughs> Several years ago, and um, we—I uh, can project, but I, this 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 one is known. Uh, and actually, we founded a, a poetry magazine together, um, the Berkeley Poetry Review, which is still going. Which is still going. Um, several years later, and um, so I think those of you who know Mona's work. Um, see the poetry in her prose. It's great to be a poet and to have that be the highest thing you can say about writing. Um, oh, you know, the poetry and the prose. No, poetry doesn't get you much more than that. <laughs> but, um, but at least it gets that highest praise of, um, uh, of any art form. Um, but um, Mona is more known. She's a wonderful poet, too. But I don't know how much you write anymore. <laughs> None. No, no verse. Um, but she is, of course, known for her wonderful um, fiction and for her um, teaching at Bard and at UCLA. And um, I was so thrilled to read this book. And <clears throat> those of you who haven't read it yet um, will be finding out how good it is. And um, not just because of the writing, which is great, um, or the story, which is great. But it, those of us in Southern California, it tells so much about um, the way we live, or those of us with children live. Um, it's a story, as many of you know from reading the reviews, uh, of um, two women and children. And the men are... Around. Around. They're around. And um, the two women, the main characters, are, are Claire, a mother, and um, Lola, uh, a nanny. And um, Lola is from the Philippines. And people sometimes come up to her in the grocery stores and start babbling at her in Spanish, a language that she doesn't have. Um, and um, there, there's many other wonderful moments in the book about um, the difference between being a mom and being a nanny, about being a mom, a parent, and knowing how much you need a nanny, about being a nanny and finding your um, musician, composer, 
um, employer's um, paycheck and finding out that you as the nanny make more than the mom um, and uh, there's an incredible amount of moments like that in there in this book so so read it obviously and Mona will be reading um, from it but Mona I asked you at Sandra's about um, uh, you know I'm, I'm making fun of the I mean as a as a husband and a father and somebody whose child had a nanny for a little while I know um, how much our um, nanny meant to us um, especially as I said the fact that it means I'll never have to run for public office <laughs> because our nanny was um, without papers um, and I always will appreciate that um, but th the relationship that you, the, the level that you get to is so deep in the book because of um, the fact that you can go into both voices the Lola voice the nanny and the Claire the um, middle class and perhaps above um, that class um, composer and and you and you you go into how um, they perceive each other and it's not at all necessarily what you'd think it's about money and it's about the fact that deep into the book the nanny realizes when she goes back to the Philippines that her life isn't with her children there and she has five children there in the Philippines but her life is with the children here in in Santa Monica um, it's also about how we know that Hollywood isn't really Hollywood Hollywood is Pacific Palisades and Santa Monica at least that's where the people who make Hollywood happen live so some of them some of them how did you conceive I've read another things and we haven't really talked about this that you've been working on this book for a long time too long too long and um, how did you keep that going through your own being a mother and a writer and um, how long was it alive in your mind before you actually started um, uh, getting it down on paper you know I've been writing this book for way too long I started it um, even before I had one book come out in between just because just because <laughs> and and it wasn't I wish I could say I sort of learned three languages and traveled the world or maybe you know made all my children's food by hand from an organic garden which I grew um, but none of those things would be true I actually was working on this book all that all that time and it just took a long time this book some of them haven't this one did I hope the next one doesn't so it's not very rewarding financially. <laughs> as your children were uh, were growing up, and you perhaps had a nanny in your own home, you many, were many 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 nannies. Well, no, we we had many babysitters or many people to help our kids in all kinds of ways. I mean, it, you know, as as anyone who has kids knows, it's it's babysitters, it's it's um, tutors of various sorts. It's I think we had a a, a pitching coach for one brief moment. <laughs> Right, and so all of those characters went into. Well, not Lola. quite. <laughs> yes, they all they all went into Lola, I guess. And there isn't just it's not just Lola. Um, Lola um, is among a community of nannies, um, uh, and and they all, um, you know, have sit around and have their coffee, and that the the, the the mothers maybe sit around and talk about um, the children and the nannies, and the nannies sit around and talk about the children and the mothers, or 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 the families, and and when you first started writing, did you know you were going to be able to, 
to go that deeply into both voices? Or how, do, how, how did that work? Well, I started this book actually because I had a little, a little child and I moved back here. I'd been gone for about 17 years. I lived in New York. Um, I'd gone away to I grew up here, then I went away to college and moved to New York for many years. And when I came back, I had a, a tiny baby. Um, and I didn't really have any friends. I mean, I, I had a few friends of friends. I had names of people to call, but I didn't really know anyone. And um, I think the doctor had recommended a mother's group, and I went to that once or twice. Sorry. Just raise it up. Okay. How's this? That's it? good. Okay. So I didn't really have a community, and I needed a community because I had no idea what to do with this this baby. So I went to a mother's group a couple times. I actually went to two mother's groups. One recommended by my pediatrician, which was all moms who weren't trying to work, but were just absolutely sort of, in fact, one of them later on developed a, a website company that was called expertparent.com. And they were all kind of expertmothers.com, so they were incredibly intimidating. And my son, it's hard to imagine how this could have been true now because he was barely crawling, but he was already kind of mischievous. I mean, there was a sort of gleeful mischievous quality to him. So at one of the early meetings of this group with the, with the excellent mothers, he pushed down the hostess mother's child. And it wasn't that he pushed her down. I mean, anyone could have done that. But it was the sort of look of, of ravishing glee that he had. <laughs> that sort of marked me as not quite good enough at this. So that was very intimidating. Then I, a friend of mine who was a writer, who I did make a friend eventually, and she at one point started a kind of a working mom's mother's group. And we met at night so we could work during the day. And bizarrely, like the, 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 the sort of superb mother's mother's group served nothing but goldfish and you know water or something those little powdery goldfish the working mothers mothers group kind of outdid each other to make these five course dinners at every meeting so basically the mothers groups weren't working out for me too well so i would just go to the park usually with my kid i'd write as long as i could um, and then i'd go to the park with my kid and I sort of fell in with a group of immigrant nannies, and they eventually found me babysitters when I when when I needed them, and that worked for me. And so I think the sort of thing that started this book was I I got that voice in my head, that kind of vernacular, half English, whatever it was, patois, and that's what really started this book for me. And then after that, um, that was kind of the gift. And then there were lots of other problems to work out over the years. That is um, part of, uh, I remember you said it, Sandra, is that um, perhaps when you first developed Lola's voice, that for the reader it might have been too far into the patois and you, and you had to pull back a little bit. Here, here's a little bit of Lola's voice before Mona reads in it. So, um, Claire walks out carrying her keys. Claire's the mom. With a child small, small, it is like a ball and chain. You are never free, not even sleeping. Bye. She slams her car door and escape. But here's, here's the insight that um, Lola gets into Claire and to Americans. She will stroll in the conservatory, thinking about old songs. Americans, for them the highest time is college. Books in a bent arm, on the way to learning. Us, we go to school to get the degree. So that's one of the many 
differences. Uh, her kids are back in the Philippines getting these wonderfully practical doctor lawyer kind of degrees and um, you know and here she's working for a, a woman who's um, in music and a, and a man who's in TV and um, it's probably pretty hard for her to grasp uh, exactly why you all sorry why your characters aren't um, uh, doctors and lawyers yes that's probably true um, how did you choose to make Claire, uh, lots of writers, we write about writers because that's what we know. You made Claire a musician um, is a, and a composer. Um, uh, what was it about music that made you go there? Well, you know, there is something unappealing about writing about artists because it's just too close to what you try to do. But in this, in this book, She's sort of the, the least, she's the slightly lesser main character. And I, I had to make her an artist of some sort because it, it, the problems are different, I think, for a, a, a working woman who's a mother if she has a real job, you know, if she really has to go somewhere. There's a, you know, I've known many women who are doctors or whatever, and it's harrowing, but more or less they have to be there at the hospital. You know, there are patients there. It's not, it's not a choice. You either quit, you're either in or out. Whereas I think exactly the qualities that would make you, Sharon Olds, a great poet, has written about this, but it's sort of exactly the qualities that would make you um, care about your work if you're an artist, but also make you not insensitive to your child screaming in, in the other room if you happen to have one. So I wanted to, I, now, a lot of the time I was working, I, I actually had an office outside the house to avoid exactly that. But, but this woman didn't, I made her, you know, um, more, more subject to the, the all those, those heart-rending conflicts. And yet, it's exactly what can make the the nanny, uh, or even her friends, as those of us who um, are writers or artists know, say. So, <laughs> you're not going off to the office to do something. You're going up to the hot. It's, it's a very hot room, stuffy, that the composer has to compose in. And, you know, she's going up to there to do this ephemeral thing, write music. And it must seem, um, especially to people from an eminently practical culture, like sheer craziness. And why don't you come down here and help me with um, the baby? <laughs> well, and... and the composer goes up to that room sometimes and, and her husband says, just close, you know, she calls her husband. He says, how's your work going? And she says, I'm, I'm, he's crying, I can't work. And he says, shut the door and go to your office and, you know, shut the door and let him cry. And so she, she obeys and she goes up to her office and shuts the door and falls asleep. Right. <laughs> right, which is um, the reason why we writers have those day beds. It's a, it's a, it's a place to, to, to nap as well. well. Why don't, Mona, why don't I ask you to go and, and, and there was a, a, a wonderful part that I had you read the other night and, and you, you have a Lola part to read as well. Yes, I have a little Lola part. I'll get my glasses. You want my dime store glasses? No, I brought some. It's just one of these purses that has lots of <coughs> I'm way beyond dime store glasses. <laughs> okay. okay, let's see. So this is in the voice. I'm just going to read a little bit in the voice of the nanny. Oops. Let's see. 
they've just been out, the, the nanny with the little boy have just been out for the day, and now they're back home. Back home, I have ready a project. We put into cardboard all the coins. Claire told us we could have the pennies for the choo-choo bank, where we are saving for the Philippines. We also find nickels, dimes, and quarters, and I have brown tubes for those too. There is always money in this house. It is a hunt, I tell Williamo, and we discover nests in the carpet, piles on counters, little dishes filled. If someone came to the door with a pizza and I needed $10, I could find it, in pockets and cups mixed with slips of paper. My house in the Philippines is like this too. That way, if I become very low, I can dig my secret garden. We pile the rolls of coins, build with them an American log cabin, using his Play-Doh for the mortar. Williamo is a very good worker. If we can keep the dimes, we will have a lot already. But I have to ask, the pennies, they are already ours. Hey, Claire answers her phone. She's only upstairs, but I am supposed to call. It is hard for her to hear sound she's making if we go there. The neighbor gardeners cause problems also with the machine that blows leaves. We are asking, can we have also the silver coins? Sure, Lola. There are certain people you know they will always say to you, yes. At the bank, we fall in line. When we go to the front, the lady acts all business, making a total of the dimes. I say, this little man filled the nickels by himself. When she finishes the silver coins, I lift a bag of pennies from his wagon. It is heavy, we have many pennies. From the log cabin, we counted $40 nickels, 27 dimes, and 103 pennies. I lift Williamo up to sea. But the lady pushes our tubes out. We cannot take pennies. Williamo picks one roll to hand it back to her. I remember this moment again and again. It is like the giving of a flower. He does not yet understand. We don't take these, she says. For a second then, his face changes, what his mother calls Barry with a frown. Cartoon looks, they are really true on children. An upside down smile, then bawling. He throws the roll of pennies at her face. I can't help you, the lady says with closed teeth. Her hand goes above her eye. She has already given us paper money for the silver. She looks at me with hate. I have seen real hate only a few times in my life. The shape of diamonds, it is shocking. But she is hurt above the eye, and I am not a white. Come, Williamo, I fight him down into the wagon. I will have to pull the pennies and him. We will make our getaway. But he runs, dragging pennies to a garbage can, and dumps the tubes in. Still crying, he is mad now, also mad. I have to stop him. This is not right, all our effort. With him, what I do is almost tackle. I get on the floor and hold him until the fight is out. Once upon a time, I say, I work in Beverly Hills, a house very fancy, three layers, floors like a checkerboard, marble. When I first came, the lady, she opened the door and right away she said, you are hired. She told me she knew like that, she snapped her fingers. You will never guess from why. Because the way I tie my sneakers, 
She thought Lola was tidy. But Lola is not so tidy, not really. I can be if I have to. And for her, I clean everything. But that is not the way I live. It is too much time always straightening. I would rather taste some part of life. The husband, he had an office, and she hired me extra to go on the Saturday. He sat working at his desk, and he had one jar like this up to my waist, full with pennies. I asked him, did he want me to get tubes from the bank? He said, you can take the pennies. But I could not lift. So I came back Sunday, my off, and I sat on the floor and put it pennies into tubes. He stepped around me when he went down the hall to use the laboratory. He asked me how much money as he went by. $36, I said. Good job, Lola. The next time, it was 94. By the last time he passed, I was at 306. His face looked strange, like two lines crossing. He went down the hall, and I heard Xeroxing. On his way back, he stopped and said, maybe you better leave the pennies. <laughs> Whatever you say, it is up to you. When he returned to his desk, I stood and left it all there, the rolled pennies, the pile on the floor, the jar turned over. I took the bus to the place of Ruth and never went back. That was the end of my career for a Beverly Hills housekeeper. Is that when you came here? You were not yet born. I had to wait for you. But uh, when the husband took the pennies to the bank, you know what they are telling him? They are telling him what they are telling us. We cannot help you. And you know what he will do? He shouldn't have taken your pennies, Lola. He is a bad man. Only a little bad. Listen, you know what he will do? He will throw the pennies in the garbage and go away in a hurry. He is always in a hurry. He is too busy. See? Now I fish with my arm in the garbage, feeling around wet things for our tubes. But we will do something else. Come, you watch. I pull him in the wagon out into the bright air. We go to the five and dime and then the candy shop. Then the discovery store where we spin the globe. Each place I count out money. I put the rolls on the counter so it is easy for the register clerk. My father told me, spend your small money first. He remembered when money became light and the lower denominations would not any more buy. And still at that time, there was wealth. In the wagon, Williamo eats long orange candy worms. See, in the bank it is nothing, but out here it is still money. Not for the Philippines, but we can buy, every day a little. It is our trust fund. I trust you, and you trust me. You have your candy, now we will use pennies to buy Lola coffee. That is what my kids, they will remember, that Lola loved her coffee. When we return home, the hallways round to a cave, and I hear chopping. I will be the one, I say. My employer, she did not grow up with a helper. She cannot easily ask. So I take the tomatoes, all the while with a smile. It is not hard, not when you have a purpose. And I have five purposes, the youngest, 23, studying medicine. Always the parents first, Ruth said. A kid cannot fire you, even here. Anyway, my employer is a very good cook. I am happy to chop, chop. Williamo sits under the table, folding a newspaper to a hat the way I showed him. Who taught you, Lola, your nanny? We did not call the ladies nannies. What did you call them? I really do not know. She was just the one in the house. In our place, you know, everyone has somebody to help. Tonight, her eye where Williamo hits shines black and blue, yellow also. Over it, she has painted makeup. 
I don't know what I'm doing wrong. It is the age, too. But my children, they were not like this, not even Dante. Here in America, they are different, also taller. Maybe I should find a psychologist for him, my employer whispers. Do you think this is all still normal? Really, I do not know. You are talking to the wrong person, I say, because uh, I like naughty boys. She sighs, better now. We will not tell her, the lady at the bank. She gives me my plate covered with a napkin to carry back to my place. You won't eat with us, Lowell? Ruth advised me, Americans do not know what they want. They invite you and then after they will pine for their privacy. Americans need privacy because it is a big, big land. Also, if I'm eating with them, when Wilyamo needs more milk, I will be the one to jump up. I like to watch the TV. It is important to have hours who are comfortable. Later on, he can come to my place. We will study the map, the lavender Philippines, Orange California. We are saving for the globe. Every day we will give the man two rolls. It can help teach counting. They leave the dishes for the morning. They are a little spoiled like my own kids, but I do not mind. They work hard. My money is earned. I can sit. That is my day. Some people across the Pacific, they had better be studying. God, that's wonderful writing, Mona, and there's so much in there. Um, and one of the things in there is that, um, all about the, the things about money, is that um, the nannies, and Lola, but other nannies too, know ex they, they have a wonderful ability to calculate very quickly. Um, and at one point, um, a rival couple who have Lola on the weekend um, offer her more money to go over to them. So there's a competition for Lola, and um, Lola turns them down because she does love Williamo. Um, but she has instantly done the arithmetic that over a many-year period, she quickly figures out, is it $70,000? It's pretty much. Yeah, $70,000 more she would have made over the many years with their kid or kids um, than, um, so, but she, but she, she willingly, um, you know, she, she gives that up. Toward the end of the novel, she also realizes um, that she has made almost a million here in, in the States. Now, I think you said the other day that that was maybe in pesos. That was in pesos, but, but she has made a lot. She's made... So, and you, did you say that was like 700,000? Yeah, she's made, she's made a lot. I, I calculated her earnings <laughs> laboriously. Right. Well, and, and so, so there's she's a... she's here a long time. It's a great lack of... I mean, you know, there's the, she has sentiment for the family and for the child, but she also is is very practical. I don't want to um, let it go before I note one of my favorite bits, um, which is what Lola calls what you all will recognize um, as a um, group of children who could be lumped together, and which I said would be a great name for an L.A. punk band, the Chinese Adopteds. Um, she lumps them together um, uh, as a group in L.A. And um, there was, you used the word chop in there a few times. Um, the chop is also the name of a chapter in which um, Lola gets fired. Um, and um, the it comes from another classic nanny moment when it's felt that um, she is, the nanny is 
giving too much rein to the child. And, um, you know, that's something, again, that we run into um, with this culture of nannyism. And that, as you say, in here, the nanny had a nanny. Um, that, I, I, I mentioned the other night, too, that for some reason at my age, I happen to be reading um, To Kill a Mockingbird for the first time in my life right now. Calpurnia, the, the nanny um, in, in um, To Kill a Mockingbird, is um, an African-American woman, and she is a strict disciplinarian. Um, and, but I realized it's because she's an American she may be black, she may be absolutely put down, uh, crushed down by the Alabama culture, but she also has uh, the, the, the sense of herself as a, as a mother and as the authority figure that she doesn't take any crap from the kids and certainly no one would ever fire Calpurnia because she was too lenient. Well, also, we must remember in To Kill a Mockingbird, as in so many children's books with nannies or housekeeper figures, the mother is dead. The mother is dead. So another reason she wouldn't be fired is because Atticus Finch probably needs his dinner cooked. <laughs> That's right. And so Claire is not is not quite dead. Um, <laughs> let's not go yet. to let's go to Claire for that for that brief passage um, that I had you read before, uh, which is on page 140, a day in drag, about Claire going off to go to a class that would teach her how to get her kids into a fancy school or a fancy uh, preschool. So I paid $300 to attend a class taught by the woman who ran the school. And here I was on a tiny chair a Friday at noon. I couldn't send Lola to this. We needed Lola so I could attend. All the mothers in the room must have had nannies. We, the prospective parents, there was one man, wore name tags. Mine said, Claire, mom of William, 2.7. Our instructress kept referring to our work, what I still live for, cried over, as background. For example, her background is in dance. I was a lawyer, but now I'm writing poetry, Helen said when it was her turn. Composer, I said next. Poetry, music, the instructress repeated. The ideal mother, great legs and a background in ophthalmology. Melissa, mom of Simon, it's three. No wonder parties in our 20s felt giddy. A secretary interested in journalism could, in the span of a few years, tip over to a background in journalism. Background was just preparation for these small chairs. Um. Noel, what's your pleasure? How's our time? Do you want to have some questions? Do you want to have... Um, yeah? Are there questions? Yes. Hello. Um, I was kind of curious um, about Claire as a composer, because your ability to talk about classical music and her method and the technical part of it just seems so accurate and deep. And I was curious about your research process, if you touch more close to you, or do you play well, I was a violist for many years when I was little, um, you know, through high school and all that. But Do you know any viola jokes? Aren't there viola There's so many viola jokes. Oh, my God. The music world is, is, is and many of you must know, is riddled with viola jokes. Do you have a good one? No. Okay. <laughs> I feel allegiance to my old instrument. But um, I, I had never been a composer of any kind, so I did, I did talk to a lot of composers. I talked to, um, it's funny, there was, I talked to the, 
the, I teach a little bit a couple times a year at Bard College, and the, the man who is the president of that is a conductor. So I, he read it in, in, in early drafts, and he said, you know, she sounds like a it sounds like a movie about a composer. So he kind of tore it to shreds, and then I talked to a number of composers, which was very fun. There was one, um, the first time I was at Yaddo, I was in my early 20s, and I was thinking of this woman just a few days ago, because there was a sort of a beautiful woman who every young male writer was in love with. And she, I looked her up when I did this book, because I thought, well, let's, let's find her and, and ask her about composing. She's about my age and all this. And, she turned out she, she married a very strict religious guy and now has five kids, but is still composing, but composing works with a religious theme. And it was great talking to her and everything, but then I got a call from the David Foster Wallace biographer, and I remember that he was madly in love with her, madly, madly. And I didn't know if I should tell him, the biographer, or not. It seemed kind of gossipy, and, but anyway. Did you? Here we have it. I did not. <laughs> I Anybody else who gets a call from the David Foster Wallace file uh, <laughs> can, can spread that. Who else? Yes, yeah. hi. I was curious about um, the experience of, it sounds like you've heard the voice of Lola for a, a long time and you were writing that, and how the Claire voice sort of crept in and then you flipped into the Claire voice. And did, did you know in the beginning I thought it should have, I always thought, yes, it was always multiple voices from the beginning, but I never really felt, um, I, I was, I, str I struggled all, the reason I didn't publish it five years ago was because of the Clara voice, I just couldn't get her right or her story right, and it, it just was, that was the struggle of this book for me and the challenge for me, because she, she was more kind of overtly my situation, um, and at the same time, there wasn't much room for her. You know, there just wasn't much room for her in this book. I couldn't, I couldn't give her a full-fledged plot in a way. How'd um, you work through that? Um, slowly. And was it was that your own insight, or was it your readers? No, no, no. I had exactly the opposite experience. My my editors and my agents just loved the mother from the get-go. You know, and wanted only that, and wanted the whole book to be her book. And and so I I never intended that or wanted that, but I. No, so that was just my own problem that I that I worked on. Um, you know, there are things in, in books where I, there are things which you which you end up getting easily, and things you get get hard. And, and there are some things you probably give up on in a book. Did you ever feel like giving this up? I mean, I guess at, at ten years. The book as a whole. Um, just sort of saying, you know, forget it. No, I always liked this book. You know, that was the thing. I had troubles with it, but I I liked it too. So I, I didn't consider giving it up, but it might have made sense to give it up in some ways. Do you work on other books at the same time? Yeah, I wrote another book which, which came out um, off Keck Road, which, which I did write during this, during when I was writing this. I had a baby and I, I wrote a, a very short book, and so that was sort of perfect for having a baby. And um, <laughs> So I, that was fun to work on. It was my one experience of having a book I could read the galleys of in an afternoon. So, so you, as a prominent novelist, you could have gone forward and published the book and no one was going to say boo. You weren't satisfied with Claire. Yeah, um, I could have published the book. I mean, it was, it was more my problem. Right. But so that's, um, I think, for those of us who are trying to write as well, uh, how do you apply that self-criticism um, so strongly that you, 
that, that you say, no, I got to go and give it another shot? Well, you know, in this book, it's not like I wasn't getting any criticism. Um, I think my agent and my editor were very concerned about the Lola voice. Or they didn't. They didn't think anyone. They, you know, my somebody said to me, you know, nobody's going to be interested in what the the housekeeper's story. Why are they going to care about that? So you, the reader can't be reading for that. And so I thought. I, I felt whenever some people have sort of obtuse criticism, I always think probably something is wrong, but maybe just not what they. Maybe they're not able to articulate it. But because after all, you know, we read these books hundreds of times, thousands of times, we know that we know them so intimately and they're reading it once and they're just getting a sort of vague impression so they might think that the problem is over here and it really might be over here. I, I, I just sort of... So the assumption was there isn't a large nanny reading audience where there's a large uh, <laughs> middle class academic artist audience? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the assumption was. I don't know. I thought possibly it was... Um, I didn't know if they really just didn't think the nanny was interesting because she was her life was so different or because perhaps they felt um, that there was a political problem with a white woman writing about a, a, a Filipina. I could see that. I, I worried about that myself. I thought about that. And yet, so and your your agents and... and uh, My editor in editor fairness always liked the loath section. It was more other people at the house. And, the, so the it, other it, people it were, okay. were wrong. On the back of the book, there's a quote from another a wonderful American novelist, uh, Michelle Hunovan, calling Lola one of the great literary creations of American literature. Well, um, that's nice. <laughs> it, it was nice, but still. So if you'd con but if you'd concentrated just on Claire, that blurb would never have been written. No, I think I think you can't listen too too closely to these things. I mean, I think it's important to to work on things as long as you need to, but at the same time, you can't take any you know, criticism as prescriptive. Unless, unless it's unless you found a sort of genius um, reader or editor. Other questions out there, sir? Well, I've read the novel, so let me ask you sure. a question. It might seem pertinent. Go ahead. But do you have a certain criticism of the, of, of this society, which fosters this nannyism, cultivates it? Do I think there's something wrong with the society, but that we have nannies? Yeah. Yeah, I think maybe. But maybe yes, maybe no. Oh, um, I have much self-criticism. No, I don't feel. I actually don't feel so guilty about that. Um, I mean, did you have children? I have two. Yeah. Who raised them? <laughs> Do you feel guilty about that? <laughs> well, I helped too. Let's just leave it at that. Um, well, you had someone who did it, and it wasn't you. Pardon? You had someone who did it, and it wasn't you. Did you feel guilty? <laughs> no. Honestly, yes. In truth, I'm being facetious. In, in truth, yes, I do feel that there's something wrong with the culture. Um, it's, it's a tough... It's a tough one, though. It's funny. My, I wrote an op-ed piece about this because I was thinking about it. And, um, you know, obviously I thought about this a lot. And there's some, I did a lot of research in this book. And I, I, um, I included a lot of, I included one. But I read hundreds of letters that had been written to um, President Roosevelt, his wife, 
um, the Secretary of Labor, everybody in the, in, the, in the 40s after the New Deal was passed, domestic workers were not included in the protections and in the legislation. And thousands of domestic workers, you know, thousands even from California, I, I particularly read the California letters, wrote these plangent, sad, tragic letters saying, please include us, these are our hours, it's terrible. And, and basically, you know, they weren't protected legally then and they're not protected in the state of California legally now. There is legislation pending in New York and nowhere else in the country. So do I think there's something wrong? Yes. But at the same time, um, I mean, I think there's a lot of problems from, from many angles. I think uh, that's just the most basic thing. I mean, it's, it's the most basic civility that domestic workers should be protected and should be, um, you know, paid on the books and paid Social Security, and, and by, you know, uh, not not to my credit, I was married to a, a, a former prosecutor, so I always did pay every single tax. But it wasn't because I was noble, it was because he was thinking of running for office at some point, so, I mean, he, he never did. He defected and did something else. But um, but I think that obviously that is, is terrible. But aside from that, also, I think we, we have a problem in that most American women now do work, and they have to economically, whether they want to or not. I mean, and also, most American women now are raised in such a way that they expect to to work, and yet we're a culture that you can't get the power company to come or the phone company to come except between nine and five. So, we haven't kind of worked it out yet. You know how children are going to be raised. Uh, I mean, it's funny because. You know, we assumed my mother actually worked. I grew up with a mother who worked. She was a single mom, and she she worked. She would say because she had to work. But and I saw sort of both sides of that. She both had to work, and I saw the burden of it for her. Um, but I also saw certain gratifications because she she actually worked with stroke victims, and she taught them to talk again. So. It was sometimes very rewarding for her, even though that wasn't the work she would have chosen. If she could have chosen, she probably would have had a more creative career, career like, like the woman in this book. But I think that the thing is, is that we're kind of in a, in a bit of a mess, culturally, about all this. Because we at one time believed, whether or not everybody did or not, or whether everybody was happy or not, we kind of believed that raising children, running a home, um, all that was was a full-time job and a, and a demanding full-time job. Now we've somehow decided that, that women have to and should, and it's cool to work, but men are typically working as much or more than they did a generation or two ago. So basically, what happened to all that stuff that women did? Who's doing it, you know? It's not all hired people, but in a way it kind of is, because whether we're talking about nannies or or daycare, or you know, the, basically, there's a whole lot of of labor, I guess you could call it, or, or work that is is now not accounted for in some way, and we kind of have to culturally take some responsibility for that. In writing this book, I thought about the various ways that that people handle the first. This is the, these people have a nanny when the boy is very little, and they they fire her actually then when. when before he goes to school. So I'm not, in writing this book, I wasn't really writing about the very wealthy people who just always have, have servants. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that 
I, I noticed just in my own little life many different ways of, of t if you do work of taking care of those first couple years. One woman I know had a full time, was a big movie producer. I don't know her well, but she, she lived, she was in the sort of school circle I was in. And her daughter, they always had the same nanny. She stayed for years and years. And the daughter, I attended the daughter's wedding. And the nanny was at the wedding. I mean, she, she really shared the place with the mother in many ways. Then um, my agent, my literary agent, who's a big worker in New York, works long hours, she always had sort of a different, intelligent young woman, usually in a pair, but somebody who wanted to get into the business every year, a new person. And so for nine months, somebody would come, they'd be great. She'd get them a good job, an entry-level job, and somewhere in the publishing world. They were happy, she was happy, the next person. There's no way that any of those girls were gonna be at, at her daughter's wedding. Now it's funny, because one way of doing it in a funny way is probably better for the mother, and the other way is probably better for the kid. I mean, of course, it, it could vary. But, and then what's better for the worker? Who knows? I mean, I remember having this discussion. It's, it's very complicated with, with a, a family member of mine who, who has, who's in business, and he was describing how, you know, all these people, you know, there's so much business that goes offshore now to China, and the Chinese workers are paid $10 a day, and that's kind of awful from our perspective. But on the other hand, they're making 10 times more than, than everyone else around. And so, I mean, is it, are you exploiting a nanny if you pay her reasonably? In some ways, I think you are. But on the other hand, what if you weren't? Is that gonna be better for her? I don't know. It's a complicated, it's very complicated. And, you know, I think novels don't usually have the answers. They just, they just go into the complication. <laughs> Any more questions? Yes. I'm, I'm interested. I haven't read the book, and let me preface it with that. Sure. I'm interested in the extent to which um, children bond to the servant. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And grow up with um, one set of ideals in terms of the class that they're raised in. Right. But the connection and the bonding is to a different class. I'm so interested in that. I, I thought about that constantly with this book. And it's true, actually, not only with, um, in a more sophisticated, cool, I mean, I don't mean cool like groovy, I mean sort of warm or cool level. That's also true, I think, of, of wealthy children in private schools because of course, their parents can afford to send them to the private schools, but most of their teachers are young, struggling, poor people of another class who are educated but not. So they're getting kind of two messages, in a way, in their lives. And, and this, is, this is it, that, in a very, very primary way. There was a man, a filmmaker, who told me a story. He himself is Chinese. And he told me that he, ha I put this in the book, you'll see it, it's in a different character and transmogrified. It's from, the nan from a different nanny's point of view. But he had had a wet nurse, this, this filmmaker, growing up in China. And at a certain point, his par he slept every night in the bed with wet nurse, and she nursed him, obviously. And at a certain point, his parents found the whole thing a little unseemly. And they said they felt he was too attached to the wet nurse, so they sent her away. 
and in this book, I I told that story that the nanny who that was the case with, it was sort of a kind of a major. That's the I made a little reference to her here. Is sort of her name is Ruth, and she's sort of the the leader of the. She's kind of the teacher of the of most of the nannies here. She's the sort of elder statesman of this particular group, and that had happened to her. And when when they when the family sent her away, in this case, I made the family um, two doctors. And when they when they sent her the Chinese doctors, and when they sent her away, they gave her a fairly good amount of money, in which she bought an apartment building in Eagle Rock, which has risen in value, which allows her to have a kind of a a safe house for new new immigrant um, women who become nannies. So they they each sort of have a bed there, you know, for the few nights a week they're off, they they can get a bed in their own dresser, and and she's she's kind of their um, conscience in a certain way. And, and I think that question goes to the phenomenon that one reads about, that it said that the that extremely wealthy people, the, the reason they're uncomfortable with the middle classes who they find striving is that they know their class, the upper class, and they know the lower, so-called lower classes, for maybe their nannies or gardeners or something, but they don't know how to deal with somebody who goes off to the eight to five, uh, the strivers. And so they are very comfortable uh, among the servants um, and loving toward them and, and, and toward their mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles. But those of us in the middle, they wouldn't know how to, what to say um, to. Um. So is it time to sign? We, we will. I, I do want to have a question. Like I said, that uh, I was a student of yours. Yes. You, you probably don't remember this conversation, but this was at least 12 years ago when we had this conversation. But we talked about how I guess you were in with, with these nannies. Maybe it was. Yes, I remember that. The, the colonel of this book, and you're talking about that um, the nannies you're working with actually had advanced degrees. And the, the some of them did, yes. Some had advanced degrees and were actually, and this is, they came to this country to work. And I was curious about if you feel, I guess, an allegiance to, to talk about their lives or, or, or sort of a need to sort of explore. Um, how, how people um, end up incredibly educated graduate degrees and, and end up you know, in another country doing this kind of work. Well, it's funny. Um I was once traveling in the Philippines. I went to research this book a little bit in the Philippines. Not that there's much of this book in the Philippines, but I thought, you know, you want to get it right. And so I was there and I was with um a woman who'd been my babysitter for not very long at all. She'd worked for me for six months or something and um she had just come to America. She was great. She soon did something else and didn't remain a babysitter. But her sister was a babysitter for people I knew. And I went to her sister's house because the sister had given me things to bring to her kids in the Philippines. So I brought, I brought these things to her kids. And the sister's kids were being raised in a suburb outside Manila by a nanny, by a yaya. And the nanny had been actually had been, these two women had had, her mother had been their nanny in the provinces, and so they'd hired her daughter when they went abroad to work to raise their children at home. And, you know, of course, in many cases, this is disastrous. I mean, many people have done this, and the kids have become drug addicts, because you can imagine it's not easy to be raised by, you know, in, in this case, one parent was working in, you know, 
Hollywood, I think, and the other one was in Israel. The father was in Israel, and they were both sending money home. In this particular case, the kids actually turned out very well because the nanny was just a really substantial, terrific person. And I said to my friend, who, who was, had been a babysitter, I said, well, you know, um, she's just a fabulous nanny in some ways. In some ways, she's a better nanny than the mother because I, the mother used to joke, that particular babysitter just used to joke that she didn't like taking care of kids. She would have rather had a job taking care of elderly people because she really didn't like raising kids. Um, and, and Lucy, my friend, looked at me and said, well, Mona, imagine you, you know, imagine if you, you went, yes, of course she's a better babysitter. Of course. She saw it as an absolute, um, a natural thing that she'd be a better babysitter because on some level she felt, you know, she had a belief in a class system in a way where, you know, Americans, we don't think we have a class system. I mean, we, we, we do, of course, but we don't think we do. And, and she assumed that, of course, that woman was raised to be a babysitter, so of course she would be a better babysitter than her educated sister who was forced by the global economy to do this work which isn't appropriate for her. So it's interesting. It's all very interesting. I did some little thing, NPR asked me something about immigration, and I did, I just worked out the numbers. And I figured out that, like, the equivalent for a Filipina, say, an educated Filipina who was a nurse, and I figured that it was equivalent, the difference in how much she could make here and there. And basically, if you assume you made $70,000 here, um, and it was, it was as if somebody told you, you can go somewhere and make $600,000 for working this, you know, a five hour, a five day week. Now granted the work won't be challenging to you necessarily or interesting or even what you want to be doing, but you'll be doing it and you will make $600,000. And that is your Monday through Friday job. If you elect to work weekends too, you can you bounce that way up and you can make, you know, probably seven hundred and forty to eight hundred thousand dollars a year. So basically, yes, you would be in a foreign culture, you would not be speaking your language, but you're making seventy thousand dollars here. I mean, if you had a real need, if your child needed to go to college and you couldn't afford it on your seventy thousand, would you do it? I don't know. It's an interesting question. Do, do those Russian oligarchs need babysitters? Maybe we <laughs> Maybe that's our gig uh, in the new world uh, economy. A writer's colony. Yeah. <laughs> the gulag. Um, thank anyway, you, Mona. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Wilson. Thank you so much. Oh, a pleasure thank to be you here. So thank you for having me in, too. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Ashling and Arlo. You can check them out at MySpace or Facebook or at the iTunes Music Store. Thank you for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.